Hey, welcome to our series, Problem of God, where we're answering big questions about faith. Is God real? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is the Bible really God's word? We hope you'll join us for each and every one of these discussions as we continue traveling through Acts. Before you log off, don't forget to fill out that connection card. You can do it at branchlife.church and stay through the end of the talk today where I've got some more important information for you. We hope that this series helps answer some of life's big questions. And thanks again for joining us for The Problem of God. We are so glad that you guys are here for the grand finale of the Problem of God series. I really feel like last week should have been the grand finale because Pastor Scott and Pastor Alex just made it extra special as we t team taught the question, the problem of the supernatural. Uh, as we wrap up the series, and if you're here for the first time, don't feel bad. You can, you can always go back and look at these questions that we've been answering uh, anytime online. And uh, you're here for a special Sunday as we close out the series, uh, traveling through the book of Acts, answering questions that skeptics have about faith, about God, about the Bible, uh, and, and if God is real, and if he's out there, and I'm living like he's not, well, then I have a problem, and so that is the problem of God, and so how can we know God is real, how can we know Jesus is God's son, has been the questions that we've been tackling. Next week is going to be a kickoff of a brand new series, so I'm encouraging you right now to come back next week. We're starting a series called Unfinished, and, and the idea with the unfinished series is simply this, Acts is a giant to be continued. And we're going to finish the book of Acts, and the story is unfinished. The mission is unfinished. The storms are unfinished. There's so much in our, that, that's happening in our lives. And here's the reminder with the series that we're going to go through, through the month of June. It's simply this, God's not done yet, and God's not done with you yet. And so your story, our story, is not finished until it is good. And so we're going to talk about that starting next week, and, and we hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Uh, so take the cards that you have on the table and pass along the online stuff. The launch of a new series, the end of another, is a great time to re-invite or to invite for the first time some friends and family who might be ready to jump in. It's a good onboarding step. Summer is a great time to have those invites go out. So we're really excited about all of those things. I hope that today you'll be encouraged with this very important final question as we talk about the problem of the Bible. And as we're jumping into the problem of the Bible, we're in Acts chapter 17, 10 through 24. In a moment, I'm going to tell you there's some amazing stuff that's happening in Acts chapter 17, uh, 10 through 24. As we bring up the topic of the Bible, here's some stats for you. 20% of the people in America today believe the Bible is literally the word of God. And so that, that's a pretty good number. That's a high number, higher than I thought when I was going into this. How many people would actually get a hold of this Bible and say that this, these are God's actual words? Well, 20%. 49% of people, so not this 20, but another 49, would say that the Bible is not literally the word of God, but it may be inspired by God like a sunset is, inspires a painter. 
And so men who were thinking about God were inspired to write the words of God. And then other people would say, this is just a totally man-made book. God had no part of it. And, and we'll, we'll see some of the objections in just a moment. For those that don't believe in the Bible, for those that don't believe in uh, the Bible as God's words, what, what are the reasons that you hear when you have that discussion? Some young people will get raised up in the church and they'll, they'll get raised being told to read the Bible and study the Bible and listen to the Bible and they'll, they'll get to college and they'll have a professor that'll say, you know what, I don't think the Bible is God's word. And they'll start to explain why they take that position. And all of a sudden people start thinking, well, maybe, maybe it's not what I thought it was. When you go out and start talking to friends and family members about the Bible, here's the top five reasons people reject the Bible as God's word. Number five, you'll hear people say it's just a bunch of made-up stories. It's not really uh, uh, God's word. It's, it's just stories. And why would they ever say something like that? Well, do people get swallowed by a whale and actually live? Is it possible someone actually walked on water someday? Is it, is it really the way that, that those things actually happened, or are they just fanciful stories out there? Some people say it's just a book that a bunch of men got together and wrote. A bunch of other men got together later and just picked these random books and put them together, and it's completely man-made, nothing special about it. Three, others will say it's, it, they have their own source of truth, so they have their own place where they get their truth, and so the Bible for them is not that source. So they're leaning on other things. The second, uh, the second uh, largest reason is people say it's too old or it's not scientific. It's not accurate. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's out of date. It's not relevant anymore. You'll start to hear those things being said. But by far, the largest reason people reject Scripture is because they think it has inconsistencies. It's not consistent. If God wrote a book, right, if God actually wrote a whole book, it would be consistent all the way through. It wouldn't have mistakes. It wouldn't have contradictions. And because it's full of contradictions, I therefore don't believe the Bible. Now, here's what I would say to that. If I found a contradiction in the Bible, I would agree with that. Have you ever seen the, the, that one Star Wars movie where Luke comes out to, to Ben and he says to Ben, Ben has these big sentences about what he thinks and he says all these things, this, that, and the other. And Luke just looks at him and says, every sentence you just said was wrong. Every sentence I just said was wrong. None of these are, are accurate. None of these are correct. And yet these are held as truthful statements by most people in our world. And if you hold these statements, and because of these statements, you reject the Bible as the word of God, and the Bible is actually the word of God, well, then you've got a problem. I don't know if there's any way to adjust the back monitor that there would be, so I would have double view. I'm only seeing the one that we're on. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we have uh, these introduction to two groups of people. If you're using the Acts journal and this is your first time with us in your Acts journal, Acts chapter 17 is the chapter that we're on. We'd love for you to get one of these Acts journals as a gift from us and uh, take it with you. Whether you're just passing by, you're able to join us for the rest of this series. But you're going to be on page 100 in the Acts journals, which is kind of fun. We're on page 100 today. And that gets us into Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we're introduced to two characters, two groups of people in Scripture. The first group of people is the town of Berea. So they are called the Bereans. The second group of people that we meet in Acts chapter 17 are the 
gang from Athens. They're called the Athenians. And you've probably heard of the guys from Athens before. It's where we get some of our great philosophers, some of our great thinkers, some of our great logic producers, uh, uh, writers, authors of ancient times. We're all part of this incredible city, Athens. Well, did you know that Paul made his way to Athens? But before he went to Athens, he was in a place called Berea. Now, Berea... Is, is, has a reputation like Athens has a reputation. And for those that follow Scripture, or for those that, that have been reading Scripture, you know the reputations of the Bereans. And here it is. The Bereans, these Jews in this town, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Take that, Thessalonica, right? They received the word with all eagerness, examining Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, the word that was being spoken. Many of them, therefore, believed the message that Paul was giving the word. The, these brothers also immediately sent Paul off to safety on his way to the sea. When, they came, when Paul came under attack, the Bereans came to his defense. Now, here, here's what's so amazing about the Bereans. They received the word of God eagerly. So Paul and Barnabas, now Paul and Timothy are traveling from town to town, trying to tell people the word that Jesus was God, he's the Messiah, the whole message we've been talking about through Acts, you must believe in him for salvation. That's the word. They didn't have the Bible to receive the word at that point. They, they just had Paul's word. They had Jesus's word. And so Paul's going around, he's giving them the word uh, the word with all eagerness. And in the New Testament, you'll see the word often talked about as the person of Jesus, as the words that are being shared by the apostle, and the words that are being written down by the apostles, the word. They were excited to get that. Then what did they do? They took the word, which was being spoken at this point, and they compared it to scripture. Well, what, what do they mean by scripture? Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, right? The Bible, or Jewish tradition, calls the Old Testament, not the Old Testament, that's a word that we made up, they call it the law and the prophets, right? The law and the prophets. They, they had Genesis through Exodus at Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, you have Psalms, Proverbs, you have all the mi big minor prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all that kind of stuff. That was the Jewish scriptures. They have been around for a long time by the time Jesus showed up on the screen, they, on the scene, they were taking the words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, and examining them against scripture. They were doing this daily. And what does, what does Paul call them? Or what does Luke call them in this passage? He calls them more noble. This was marks of nobility. This was a high character trait. This was something to be praised for. And so the Bereans got this reputation as defenders of the apostles, as examiners of scripture, as accepting the word given to them by God, by Paul, by Jesus. So they were, so people today, if you ever, there's lots of churches, I think there's one in Pottstown called Berean Bible Church. Why is it called Berean Bible Church? Because of, of this character trait. They want to be all about this book. Now, the Athenians had many, many, many faiths and didn't accept the word. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You see, the question then is, did God write a book? Did God actually write a book? In, in this passage, we see 
two different words for what we would call the Bible, and you have to understand that what you're holding today is not the same thing that was being talked about in Scripture at this time. Do you know where this came from? Genesis through Revelation, how did this get produced? How did it arrive in our hands in this format, the semi-genuine leather format with my name on the front and the concordance and the study notes and the cross-references and the chapters and the verses? When did all those get here? Most people don't know the story of the Bible. And here's, here's the big thought for this morning. Many, many people know the stories in the Bible, but do not know the story of the Bible. Do you, do you know, have you heard, and most people have, the story of the guy that got swallowed by a whale? Have you ever heard of a story about a little, small, short shepherd boy with a sling and a stone who shot an arrow at a giant and killed him? It's the story of David and Goliath. Anytime you want to watch a sports thing where the underdog is coming up against the big, powerful, dominant, better-recorded sports team, they're going to be, it's David versus Goliath. And I'm like, these guys read the Bible, Right? You've probably heard the story about a baby who was born of a virgin, and we sort of celebrate that, I don't know, every Christmas. There's the Easter thing where he rose from the dead. That's a big deal. This is Pentecost Sunday. We're talking about the Holy Spirit coming, and we have power that's been given to us, an awesome thing to celebrate. And all of these stories, Adam and Eve and, and Joshua around the battle of Jericho and and Paul being shipwrecked, and all of these stories are stories that are, are familiar, at least familiar to most. Jonah in the ark, Jonah in the ark, Abraham and Eve, right? I start getting them mixed up at some point. <laughs> we start talking about these stories from the book of the Bible, but how do, how do we get them? How can we have confidence that this is God's word? And how do we answer the objections, even for ourselves, to say, this isn't a man-made document. But God actually wrote a book. Can you think about that for a second? What if God actually wrote a book? How transformational would that be? For most people, we understand that the Bible is, a, is not one book, but it's many books that have been brought together over time. 66 books with over 40 different authors written over a span of thousands of years. You have the New Testament, which is the newer section of what we now today call the Bible, if you would have said to Paul, Paul, what's the Bible? He'd be like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. He, he just knew uh, sections of it. Now, I, I like looking at the New Testament first because it's going to help us with our discussion this morning. But in the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every section of Scripture has a literature type. This literature type is called a gospel. We would know it better as authorized uh, a authorized biography, right? This is the story of Jesus' life, his birth, his ministry, his, his death, and his resurrection, and it's told four times from four authors who were all connected to eyewitnesses, direct, direct witnesses to the life of Jesus. That's the Gospels. And then connected to the Gospels is Acts, the book that we are in right now that we're studying to, written by Luke, one of the authors of the Gospels, as a part two to his story. Then what happened with this thing called the church? Then you have what's called letters or epistles. These are all letters that were written to people by people connected to Jesus. Most of them, almost all of them written by Paul. Some of the other apostles were involved. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is prophecy, talking about the future. That was written by the same John who wrote the, the same author, 
John, who wrote the Gospel of John. Then in the Old Testament, these are all written before the time of Jesus. The oldest book in the Old Testament is not the first one. The oldest book that we have, the most ancient of documents, is Job. Job was written first. It's by far the oldest book. Talks about God and, and Satan having a conversation in heaven. But in a chronological way, Genesis is the first one talking about the beginning. You have the five law books that were written by Moses. And then you go through uh, some of the judges, some of the kings, the chronicles, the story of of Israel in these chapters, and then you have the major and minor prophets. Right in the middle, you have the wisdom books with Job, with Psalms, uh, with Proverbs. These are, are poetry, obviously a book of songs, and then uh, more prophecy. Some has been fulfilled, some yet to be fulfilled. This is the Old Testament. This was the Jewish scripture, the Jewish canon. Now, there's lots of nations in ancient times, lots of philosophy, lots of of books of authority, lots of books of faith, but this was the Jewish book of faith. And we, we believe that these two put together make the Bible. So what is the story of the Bible? How did all these come together and create what we're holding in our hands and what, what some claim is the actual word of God? Well, if you would look in Luke chapter 1, uh, it gives us a story or an explanation about what, what typically happened with these books. And Luke says... Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke says, many people have undertaken this important task of explaining what? An event. Something significant took place, and it needed to be recorded. It's not like that they had like ancient times TikTok. I guess, I guess we can't use that anymore because of China. Uh, ancient times Instagram or whatever you want to use. There wasn't national-wide media cover. There was no such thing as videotape and digital media. They, they didn't have a way to communicate via email immediately or even print newspapers. Everything got handed down word of mouth. And if you wrote something down, you had to write it by hand. And if you were going to make a copy of it, you had to write that copy by hand. And then there was two copies. And those things would start circulating. If you wanted three copies, someone would have to write it down again. And so all this amazing stuff that happened, Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, that was noteworthy. That was book-worthy. That was explanation-worthy. So these eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, people connected to the events, thought it wise to start writing them down. And some of those are named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them directly connected to Jesus in some way. Luke through Paul, Mark through Peter. Did you know that Peter was illiterate? Peter was just a fisherman. Peter couldn't write stuff. Even the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Peter were not written by Peter's hand. He was talking to someone who wrote them down for him. And the same thing happened with Mark. Mark probably was just writing for Peter, Peter's gospel, Peter's account of these events. And Luke, Luke being a part of the story, a doctor writes it down as well. Matthew obviously walked with Jesus, as did John. And so they, they wrote down the stories of Jesus. In John, it says why they did it. In John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that you believing may have life 
in his name. The reason these books were written down was so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and then be able to have life in his name. The entire story of the Bible is centered around one person, and that person is Jesus. And so John says, we have to write this stuff down. We have to give it to you. And if all you had was the book of John, you would have enough to believe in the name of Jesus. It'd be there for you. You would know what you need to know to know and understand Jesus. More stuff has been done that wasn't even recorded, but you've been given enough. That's why the book of John is often the first book we encourage people who are exploring faith to read. It's got everything you need. It's got the whole explanation of faith. The most famous book of the Bible, verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, that's where it's found. God's love of the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's one of the great misconceptions about the story of the Bible. Most people believe that the Bible gave us Jesus. But that's not how it works. Jesus gave us the Bible. You see, the Bible didn't give us Jesus. Jesus gave us the Bible. Jesus is the one who produced this book. Jesus is the one who wrote this book. Jesus is the one who has compiled this book. Jesus is the one who has protected this book. Jesus is the one who has inspired this book. Jesus is the one who has given this book authority in our lives. This book did not give Jesus authority. Jesus gave this book authority. And by the name of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, by the words of Jesus, we can have confidence that what we are studying, what we are uh, holding on to, what we are looking at and reading is actually the words of God. And so let me take you through the timeline, and you can go more into depth than this than we have time for this morning, of the stories of Scripture. In Jesus' life in 30 and 33 AD, so that was the ministry of Jesus. He was 33 when he died. He was 30 when he got baptized. During that time, Jesus affirms the Old Testament as Scripture. So the 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, he confirms those as scripture. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter 24. I don't have this particular one on the screen. So Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 in verse 44. We hear Jesus, this is a quote from Jesus. And, and there's many kinds of these quotes. It's just one example. So Jesus says this in verse 44. Then he said to them, and I quote, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in the prophets, right, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, major and minor prophets, and the Psalms, the wisdom literature, must be fulfilled. Everything in the three sections of the Old Testament must be fulfilled. That, those books, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, guess what? Jesus says they're accurate. They're right. They're correct. Why would any Gentile, why would any Greek, why would anyone from Athens, why would anyone from Rome care one bit about the Jewish sacred texts. There's so many, the Babylons had sacred texts, right? 
the Spartans had sacred texts. Why do we care about this small Jewish sect? The only reason Gentiles over the years care about the Jewish sacred texts is because Jesus said so. He points back to them and says, that's God's word. Now, from 0 to 33, so more accurately, from 30 to 303, we had just copies and copies of authoritative apostolic literature. In other words, when Jesus died for the next 60 to 90 years, the apostles, those connected to Jesus, started writing their accounts. Matthew wrote his gospel. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, his letter to Timothy. John wrote Revelation, right? They wrote all of these books, and they started circulating for 300 years, copies of copies. These, if you got a copy of Matthew's version of Jesus' life, if you got a copy of the, Paul's letter to Rome, if you got a, a copy of Jude, if you got a copy of Hebrews, that was so, so, so valuable to you. Why? Because it was these handwritten copies, and there weren't very many. And every time they wrote another one, that became valuable. They got protected. They got sent around to the different churches. And for hundreds of years, the churches were gathering, along with the Old Testament scriptures, these new copies of copies, and they were protecting them, they were reading them, they were, they were looking at them as authoritative because they were helping them learn more about Jesus and what to do to Jesus, with Jesus and what to do with this thing called the church. Well, in around 300 AD, Emperor Diocletian, Dinoctoclian, this emperor in 300 decrees to destroy all of Christian literature. Not just Christian literature. He wanted to destroy Christian homes. He wanted to destroy Christian houses of worship. He just wanted to destroy everything that had anything to do with Jesus, including, and most devastatingly, all of Christian literature. And so he, he was gathering these copies of copies, the Old Testament texts, the New Testament copies that are, are roaming around. And they're, every time they got them, they're destroying them. And what did the Christians start doing, the tens of thousands of Christians? They started protecting these copies. They would do things like put them in jars and hide them in waterproof caves. And we'd find them thousands of years later, and they'd be called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these copies of copies were protected, and they were trying to be destroyed. No other book, no other text, no other faith has been attacked as much as the text of Scripture. And this is one and one of many examples, but maybe the first large-scale example where someone tried to take the Bible and completely eliminate it from our world. And over and over again, this book has come under attack. It's still under attack in modern times, just like it was under attack in ancient times. Yet this book, these copies of copies, these fragile handwritten documents were so valuable, and somehow, miraculously, they were protected over time. And there's a promise in Scripture that God's going to protect his words. How did they survive thousands and thousands of years? How did they survive persecution and purging? They survived because God miraculously has intervened from the time of the writing till today so that you and I would be able to have access and confidence that these are his words. In, in the, in, around 367 AD, after this emperor, a new emperor came onto the scene who gave religious freedom to the Christians and to everyone else, probably he himself a Christian. And in 400 AD, Christianity could come out into the open and it could be 
publicized. It could be talked about. It could be proclaimed. It could be copied and spread. And so what happened is that there was a church father who we have the first and earliest record of these 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books being called or connected together as the Bible. It wasn't until 400 AD that, some, that this was put into one space, even as a, in a list, and said, this is canon, this is scripture, this is God's word, this is the Bible. Then, in 400 AD, the first council got together, and you'll hear people object to the Bible because they'll say just a bunch of people came and they picked random books. This, these councils did not pick the Bible. These councils affirmed what was already considered authoritative. And the reason these councils did that, and the Council of Carthage being the first one, was because new books of the Bible started showing up. People started saying, I wrote scripture. I wrote scripture. I read this document. I read this scroll. I read this, parch this parchment. And I think this is God's word. And the council would say, no, that's not God's word. And they had several reasons for that. One of the best-selling books, modern books of all times, besides Harry Potter, of course, is The Purpose Driven Life, just by show of hands. How many of you have The Purpose Driven Life, a copy of that? Yeah, so most all of us, right? Not near as many people as had the Bible. This is tons of, the bestseller by far, take the top 100 books and put them together. The Bible still beats it all, all day of the week. But The Purpose Driven Life did pretty good. And, and Rick Warren, the author of Purpose Driven Life, made out like a bandit. So much so, he only lives on 10% of what comes in, and he gives 90% away to kingdom work. Isn't that amazing? Now, what if somebody said, I think the purpose-driven life should be put in the New Testament. I think we should have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, the purpose-driven life, Ephesians, Philippians, right? Well, wait. No. But then, but then a group of people started saying, yeah, but it's really popular, and everyone loves it, and Rick is such a great guy, and he gives away 90% of his money. It has to be from God, and the church leaders would go, N no, you can't just add a book to the Bible. Like, it's not how it works, and they were like, why not? Of course it can be that way, and the church, the, the leaders had to get together to explain to people that you just can't throw new books into the Bible. That you can't make up scripture. That scripture actually has a purpose, a starting point, and some... Now, here's, here's some of the categories of what makes scripture scripture. And this introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler, you can grab that and you can read that. This is a pretty common understanding of, of what these councils and what we today look at to say this is verifiably scripture. So what, what confirms divine inspiration? Well, number one is the authority. In other words, did the author say that this came from God? I will tell you right now, if you said, Rick Warren, is your Bible, is your book, The Purpose Driven Life, Scripture? He would go, no way. No chance is it Scripture. He never claimed for a hot second that it was supposed to be authoritative. It's just great advice. It's just based on his life experience. It's, it's flawed. It's fallible because it's from Rick. But the authors of these books were saying things like, thus saith the Lord. I'm writing on behalf of God. 
right? They had authority in their speech and in their speaking. So if you read Mark 22, he was saying he was teaching as one who had authority from God. And so there's authority that comes in these scriptures. If Jesus said that it's scripture, well, then it has authority of scripture. And there is a large section of these books that have no debate whether or not they're scripture from religious scholars. Why? Because they have such strong claim to authority. Jesus, the guy who rose from the dead, said so. Or it was coming from his followers. So if we have, there's, there's no doubt that Genesis is from God. There's, there's no doubt that, that Matthew is from God, right? We know these things to be true. So the rest of the books get compared to what there's no, there's actually a word, uh, a word that describes this. Homologamala. These are books that have no debate. They have to be scripture. Then there's a second book, Prologamala, where people are looking at maybe they're scripture, maybe they're not. We have, to, we have to talk about it. Like Hebrews, for example, we don't know for sure who wrote it. So there's a question about authorship, but let's compare it to the rest of Scripture. So they started going through this process. Does it have authority? If it has authority, it, or is it connected to a book that has authority? Is the author someone who was a godly man, someone who was connected or sent by God, inspired by God, not, not some joker who was out for gain or revenge? Is there, is there authenticity? Is it consistent with other scripture? Remember the number one objection to scripture being scripture is? It's got inconsistencies. There have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have spent thousands and thousands, people have dedicated their lives to understand scripture and to, to make this one point, that it is 100% absolutely consistent. So if somebody claims inconsistency in scripture, you have to ask them one question. Will you show me? Show me where it's inconsistent. I honestly, Josh Park, would like to know if there's an inconsistency in scripture. Please show it to me. Show me where it's inaccurate. Show me where it doesn't match up historically. Show me where there's two stories that maybe say different things. Whatever you want to claim as inconsistency, please show me that it's inconsistent because there have been thousands. The greatest minds of our world have said to us that the Bible is absolutely consistent. And there is an explanation. This book has been canonized for a thousand years and it has, it has had every objection under the sun. You can't make a new objection to this. There is an answer for every challenge of consistency and inconsistency. And I don't have time to go through all of them today. But there's, there's reasons why there's a challenge, but there's really, really, really great answers to, the, to those challenges. All to come back to say, these 66 books have one amazing unified message. It's miraculous that they all talk about the same thing in the same way. And that's the Messiah and Jesus Christ is Lord. Then third, fourth, is it active and alive? You know there's a big difference between the purpose-driven life and scripture, right? Because the purpose-driven life is not alive, but scripture is. Shakespeare's novels, plays, not alive, but scripture is. The Homer in the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey, not alive, but the Bible is. Harry Potter, not alive, but the Bible is. This, this book, unique than any other book, and it would be so if it was the word of God, is alive and well. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, and this has been a part of your regular, regular uh, 
rhythms in life, you have experienced what I have experienced, and that is the living word of God that challenges you, that comforts you, that directs you, that inspires you, that, that, that uh, um, uh, punishes you, that causes you to fall to your knees, that brings you to emotion in front of the Lord God Almighty, that changes even the marrow in your bones. Why? Because it's a lie. And have you experienced comfort from any other place like you've experienced comfort from the words of God? Have you experienced growth and knowledge in any other place than you've experienced from the words of God? This is a living document, a living book that connects to living souls. How does that happen? God wrote a book. And so if it's not alive, it's not scripture. And then is it, has it been accepted? In other words, did the original authors believe that these were actually the words of God? Did they receive it as authoritative? Did they protect it like it was God's word? And, and many, many, many of these books that were circulating around the same time as the Gospels that have been rejected, they were never seen as scripture, yet later people wanted to say, let's add these two, and they said no. That's, that's, they were never seen as authoritative from the beginning, from the time that they were wrote, written, from the early church. As we continue through the storyline of the Bible, uh, we see that after several hundred years or a thousand years, could you advance me one more? There was a, uh, in, in, 1200, in 1280 chapters and divisions, chapter divisions were added. So there was roughly a thousand years where there was no such thing as a chapter of the Bible. There were just books that were written all, all read all at one time. And then in 14 AD, verse divisions were added. So now you had John Three, but eventually you got John 3, 16, and it, these are man-made divisions. If you're being inspired as you read and it comes to the end of the chapter, and you're like, wait, I think I should keep going. Keep going, right? Someone just happened to put the break there for whatever reason. These are not inspired by God. They're just helpful because it's way quicker to turn to John 3, 16 than it is to turn to uh, for God so loved. You know, find those words. And, and uh, in 3 AD, John Wycliffe, he made the first translation of the whole Bible from Latin. The Bible around four or five hundred was written in Latin, and that was the main, the main circulating document for thousands of years. And from Latin, we had our first English version from John Wycliffe. The Gutenberg Press then made it possible to stop copying things by hand, and we could start making tons of copies right away. The first thing printed on the Gutenberg Press was the Bible, and it was, um, it was flying out as of 1450. Now copies of copies could be made at no problem. In the 1500s, Tyndale made the first translation of the New Testament from the Greek to the English. The original, the Bible, the Old Testament books were written in Hebrew. The New Testament books, when they were written, most of them were written in Greek. They, they changed it all to Latin for the sake of the culture, but the original documents, the ones that we have close as we can to the original authors, are written in Greek and, and, and Hebrew. Tyndale started the work of saying, Let's, let's cut the middleman out and go right to the originals. And so he starts making the first English translation in, in 1525. He gets killed. Uh, he's strangled and, and he's buried. And then the next one, his work is finished. The Old Testament is finished in 1537. 1611, we have the King James Version. And then since then, there's been many, many English versions that have been written over time. I, actually, I happen to have the English Standard Version. That's the one that we have in our journals, that's the one we have in our pews. That one's new fairly here in the last 20 years or so. Uh, all of them are a, a topic for a different time. How do we translate what, using what words? And I'll talk about that in a moment. 
But when you look at these stor- the story of Scripture, where it's come from, how it's been protected, and how God has written a book, I have to just make this point. That our relationship with God's Word is essential. It is the primary way to know the one true God. Why is this such a big deal? Why do we need to know where this came from? Because we, you and I both need to have confidence that this is actually God's word. Why? Because this is our primary avenue, our primary vehicle to know the God of Scripture. And so we want to understand, love, read this book. It has to become the center of our spiritual universe as we seek to know God more. And when I am absolutely convinced God wrote a book, now I have to devour that book. Now I have to follow that book. Now I have to understand that book. Why? Because it's the very, very words of God. Let me give you a couple of cautions as we examine what truth is. And this is a massive question in in our world today. Number one, beware of study notes. How many of you have a study Bible? Notes on the bottom, notes on the side, cross-references. Let me just tell you right now, none of those are inspired by God. I am not against study notes. I am not against study Bibles. I am not against commentaries. I spend quite a bit of money on all of those things. They are helpful to me, but they are not scripture. And they can be wrong. You have to always take them back and compare them first to the, the, the biblical authors in those books. So just take caution. Just because some smart guy said that's what it means, it may not be what it means, right? I got I to gotta just beware of that. Second, beware of the readability above accuracy Bible. Beware of the readability above accuracy. There are some Bibles out there, some translations, that they want to smooth it out so it sounds better, so it, it's, it's got more of a cultural vibe to our day, our age, and I, get, I understand that they're going for readability, but if they're doing readability above accuracy, well, then you got a problem. Why? Because we believe that the words are actually God's words, and I want to be as accurate with those words as possible. If I start smoothing it out and I start adjusting the meaning of those words, intentionally or unintentionally, I'm taking them away from the word of God. These English translations are not inspired. The Greek and Hebrew are inspired. The original documents are inspired. And so we want to make sure that we're matching as, as closely as we can the accuracy of those original words. So just caution with those. Not that the readability ones aren't helpful, but you, you have to be careful they're not changing the meaning of the words. Number three, beware of the question, what does the Bible mean to you? What does the Bible mean to you? That question implies that the Bible can have two different meanings if there's two different people. What if there's three people? Well, then it can have three meanings. What if there's four people? Then it can have four meanings, right? You see where I'm going? The inspired truth does not change from person to person. The truth is the truth is the truth. My question should be, what did the Bible mean to the original reader? What did the author mean when he wrote it down? That's what I want to know. Now, how do I apply that in my life? So not that the truth, there's one truth, right? There's, there's one truth. It presents truth in Scripture. I'm going to take that truth. There's thousands of ways to apply it, but the meaning is not different. So just beware of that question. And then number four, beware of any church or any preacher that does not preach the word. Beware of any church or any preacher that does not hold this up as the infallible word of God that is getting their information from somewhere else. 
I can say a lot of wrong things most days. And I do quite a bit. I'm wrong a lot. The Bible never is. And God never asked churches and preachers to preach their word. He asked churches and preachers to preach the word. And so our, our mission, our goal here at Branch Life Church is that every time we gather together and we present truth, advice, scripture, that we are preaching from the word of God, whether we're going through a book, we want to understand what that book says and present its truth and apply them to our lives. Whether we're talking about a topic like parenting, we want to take God's word and apply those principles to that topic. However we do it, our commitment is that we're always going to be in the word. We're always going to be in the word because this matters. This is where truth is. This is what's alive. This is where the authority is because God wrote a book. And so that's the one we want to be all about. There are a lot of churches out there that sprinkle in bible stuff and they tell you what they want to tell you. And just be very, very, very careful about that. Make that to be your most important benchmark when talking to people. One of our values here at Branch Life Church is we value truth, which means we are committed to the word of God. Revelation 22 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them to the plagues described in this book. When you read Revelation, the plagues ain't good, so don't add to the Bible. 19, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. God wrote every word. So the question that we ask ourselves as we wrap up today is what is truth? In Acts chapter 17 and verse 22 Paul makes his way to the center of thinking of the world. He goes to Athens and he goes to the Apocrypha. The, the, he goes to the place where the Athenians were preaching and teaching and doing their thinking. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. In other words, in Athens, they worshipped every god. They worshipped many gods. There was many faiths. There was many ways to truth. Everybody had their own avenue that was taking them to truth. The Greeks had truth. The, the barbarians had truth. The Jews had truth. Everybody has truth. And so no matter who you are, we want to understand all of your truth. He says, I see that you're very religious, right? You worship lots of gods. You have lots of things that you believe are true. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, the statues and the monuments and the books and the temples. And I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. So in Athens, they had all the gods that had name. There was Zeus, there was Athenian, there was, Athenian, there was, there was Dionysus, whoever it might be, right? And they had this one, just in case we missed him, to the unknown God, we worship you too. We may not know your name, but we just want to cover all our bases. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about the God that you missed. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to present to you now what you need to know and who you need to follow. And what does he go on to tell them in Acts chapter 20? Read it because it's amazing. It's the same thing he said in Thessalonica. It's the same thing he said in Berea. It's the same thing he said in Ephesus. He said, he, Jesus, has given assurance to us, or he, God, has given assurance to us all by raising Jesus from the dead. If a guy can, if a guy can predict his death, and he dies, and he predicts his resurrection, and he 
resurrects from the dead, I'm going to go with what that guy says, right? Jesus is alive, therefore Jesus is who he says he was, the Son of God. Jesus gives us the Old Testament. Jesus gives us the New Testament. Jesus is God in flesh. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is truth. Jesus would say, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So how, how do we know the truth? How do we know Jesus? How do, how do the Bereans know truth? How do the Athenians know truth? How do we know truth at Branch Life today? Listen to me. Listen, listen. Here's how we know truth. God wrote a book. God wrote a book, and he's lined out truth for us. The very words of God are written in this book. The very words of Jesus are written in this book. How God has moved from the beginning of time till now and how it's all going to end is written in this book, and that's how we know the truth. You're not going to find it in here or here or out there. You're going to find it here. The unknown God has revealed himself, and God wrote a book. Charles Ryrie, who spent his life explaining this to people, said, not many years ago, to affirm your belief in the full inspiration of the Bible, all you needed to say was, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, over the last 20 years, today, you now have to say, I believe the Bible is the verbally, plenary, inflowable, inspired word of God. You probably have to add historical and all these other big terms. Why? Because people still attack the, the word of God as God's word. And so when we, when you can look these up, this is, I can, we can do a class someday. All of these just come at another, every single word, every word is inspired by God. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by God. It doesn't make mistakes. It's not infallible. It's not, it's not up for debate whether it's accurate or not. It's, it's inspired. In other words, God has given it to us directly through men. I believe in all of these things makes this together the word of God. God wrote a book. And when God says in 2 Peter 1.19, know this first of all. If the Bible ever says know this first of all, you've got to listen, sit up, pay attention, get your notebook out. Know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not how it works. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired by God without mistake. It was inspired by God. Not, God did not whisper, and they didn't say repeat it again, right? So he was not whispering to them. So some people were like, were they listening to a voice? No, he wasn't listening to a voice. God used the people, their circumstances, their experiences, and he inspired them to write, even in their own personalities, the word of God, all of that is inspired by God. God inspired them to write these words. And it, it is without mistake. In John chapter 16, verse 12 and 15, God wrote a book. And here's, here's the process. I, Jesus, have many things to say to you, but can, you cannot bear them. But when the spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost Sunday, he will guide you to all truth. He will guide you to all truth. He's going to guide you to write the truth down. He's going to guide you so that you have everything that needs to be said. For he will not speak on his own authority, the Holy Spirit, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are come. He, so you will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has is mine. So from the Father to Jesus to the Holy Spirit to us, the truth has come. 
from the Father to Jesus to the Holy Spirit to human authors, the truth has come, and he has produced a book that's been completely inspired by God. God wrote a book. God wrote a book. In 2 Timothy 3.15, it says, you, have been acquainted, you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. God breathed out this book, and I love this description, why I saved it for last. God breathed out this book like it's life-giving breath for, all, for you and for me. I, I'm traveling through storms of life right now. I'm not sure how I get by these storms without the life in this book. I don't know, I don't know how to find God. Yes, last week we said, if God's if, God, if like an airplane is far away, it's going to be really small, right? But you know airplanes are really big when you get up close. The closer you are to God, the bigger he is, right? How do I do that? I got to get in the book. It's alive and well. I remember taking a, 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 asking my neighbor the other day how he was doing. He's a traveling nurse. He said, I'm sore. I said to my neighbor, he's in his 50s. I said, why are you sore? You've been working out? And I've never seen him work out a day in his life. And he goes, no, I'm not working out. He goes, I've been, I had a, a patient in the hospital. He's a nurse. I had a patient in the hospital who flatlined, and I was doing CPR on him for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. What is CPR? That's pumping the chest and breathing in air. Pumping the chest, breathing in air. When you breathe in the air, the air travels through your body. When you pump your heart, it takes the oxygen, and that oxygen feeds the rest of your body, feeds your brain. And for someone to stay alive, all they need is the air and the pumping. The air and the pumping. The air and the pumping. When you read the Bible, you are giving yourself spiritual CPR. God is keeping you alive. He's giving you the breath of life. You're breathing it in. You're pumping it through your whole body, through your mind, and through your heart so that you can love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself so you can travel through these storms of life with God at the helm when the author of the book, God, writes a book and he makes it alive for you and I. It's a life-giving book that is essential for everyone. God wrote a book. Here at Branch Life, we believe that the infallibility and supremacy of Scripture is a hill we will die on. That is something we will fight for. That is something we will, we will uh, stake our reputation in. That is something that is essential for us. And so we believe this, that these are the actual words of God, and it's powerful in, in our identity and our DNA. His divinely inspired, supernaturally protected words give us life. Why are we called Branch Life Church? The deeper our roots in Christ, the farther our, our reach. The more we are connected to God, the greater difference we're going to make in this world. We want to be a group of difference makers. We want to love our neighbors. We want to see lives change. We want to see this world become a better place one heart at a time. How do we do that? We plant ourselves in the life-giving book of God. So what's my goal for you? Well, tomorrow, you're going to need help. Something's going to happen. It's another day here on planet Earth. My goal is that you run to God and read the Bible for within it are the words of life. And I hope that tomorrow you cannot wait to open the words of God. 
Because where else would I go? Watch this video. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book, and with his book, these words in front of us, he wakens our dead, bored souls. He frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. So will I read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy him forever? Yes, I'll spend the rest of my life looking out of this window, watching, waiting for another sight of him, another miracle, another glimpse of my God. Hey, thanks again for listening through this talk in our Problem of God series. And we hope that the discussion today helped answer some questions that you might have about faith and that you've taken a step further in your spiritual journey. Before you go, make sure to fill out your connection card at branchlife.church. We'd love to know that you joined us through this video session today. If you have any questions about what we covered, that's the place to ask those questions. We hope that you'll join us again next time. And thanks again for being a part of this series.